It's the last week of our summer member drive. Become a LARB member by August 22nd, and not only will you receive all the perks of membership, but our friends at the Hugo House in Seattle are offering all new members 10% off one writing class per quarter beginning fall 2021. Join today at lareviewofbooks.org slash join. Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we're speaking with a LARB alum, former editor, Matthew Spector, about his book, Always Crashing in the Same Car, on Art, Crisis, and Los Angeles, California. That's right. Matthew is one of the founding editors of LARB. And this book is a collection of, it's a mix of essay-ish pieces and memoir about his own identity as a writer and essays on writers that he has discovered recently and writers that he's long admired. And also filmmakers, musicians, actors. Tuesday, I went on a crazy um, Tuesday well dive after- After reading this book. Yeah, she's amazing. I think this book actually really lends itself to fun Google dives after you're (laughs) done reading his piece. Definitely. Yeah, the Tuesday, well, there's like this interview that he talks about. Was it Dick Cavett? Maybe. It's always Dick Cavett. And this bag that she has, this giant bag that she walks on with. It's true. Like, you don't usually see celebrities these days, like walking on with their purses. Yeah. When they do right. this huge macrame bag and she's wearing sunglasses and she's really honest about um, like her alcoholism and, you know, stopping working because she wanted to be a mother and it gets heavy. And, and she's really funny and beautiful and it's a different kind of interview style than um, most talk show hosts have now. And she was very compelling to me. And then also just the variety of films she made and the decisions of, of movies she didn't make that probably could have made her a lot more famous. And I think that's something Matthew explores here a lot is choices, paths taken and not taken for a lot of these more outcast, outcast artists. Totally. And it's a really great book to learn more about people like her and go on discovery adventures of your own. <laughs> great. Well, let's, let's discover some things together and listen to the interview. Let's do it. so happy to be speaking with the writer Matthew Spector today. Matthew is the author of the novels The American Dream Machine and That Summertime Sound, as well as a nonfiction book about the film The Sting. His writing is published widely in places like the New York Times, the Paris Review, Vogue, and GQ, and has also appeared in the literary journals RIP, Open City, Black Clock, and Tin House. I happen to know Matthew from his work right here at the Los Angeles Review of Books, where he's one of the founding editors. He joins us today to discuss his newest book, always crashing in the same car on art, crisis, and Los Angeles, California. A memoir and cultural history, always crashing explores the work and lives of writers, actors, directors, and musicians who straddle the line between success and anonymity and whose careers, though majestic, still leave questions about what might have been had circumstances, or in many cases, their temperaments differed. These include the screenwriters, Eleanor Perry and Carol Eastman, the novelist, Thomas McGuane, 
the actors Tuesday Weld, and the filmmaker Hal Ashby. The book questions notions of both success and failure, especially through the distorted prism of Hollywood. It also touches on Matthew's own experience growing up and later working in the film industry, his mother's brief turn as a screenwriter, and his father's more abiding success as an agent. As someone born here, I very much appreciated the portrait of LA it draws with both love and just a bit of disdain. Welcome, Matthew. Thanks. Hi, Kate. Thank you for having me. So, Matthew, this book combines, as Kate mentioned, combines criticism of various artists, writers, and filmmakers, and your own memoir. And I was wondering how you first began this collection of essays. How did you know who to begin with and how to begin? I made a list. I mean, a very long list. Uh, It was kind of, I mean, there were just dozens and dozens of people that I thought I might want to write about. I was intent on two things. One, that it wasn't going to be an essay collection exactly, and that it wasn't going to be a straight memoir. I think I had sort of fallen under the sway of things like Hilton Al's book, The Women, Olivia Lang's Lonely City. I just noticed that a lot of the things that I had been responding to over the last couple of years, you know, a book like Heidi Julevitz's The Folded Clock or Sarah Manguso's work, 300 Arguments, I was really, I started to realize that almost every book that I loved was a kind of a hybrid or sort of hard to categorize. And I had sort of reached the end of the line with a novel that wasn't working. So I knew that I wanted to write something that, you know, had this kind of hybridity to it. And I also knew that I had written a piece about Eve Babbitt's that is the intro to the NYRB reissue of Slow Days, Fast Company. And I had loved doing that so much. You know, I just thought it was such a pleasure to me at a time when other kinds of writing were feeling kind of gluey and exhausting. So I started from that premise. And I think my agent, Allison, and I just kind of would shoot these emails back and forth. And the list kind of clarified itself pretty quickly. Like I somehow I just was able to kind of zero in on a set of figures. And they felt a little bit like tarot cards, like each person in it is, it was both a narrative that attracted me, but also kind of an archetype. You know, it's like the successful novelist who kind of came to LA and and went kind of nuts. That's, you know, Tom McGuane or the you know, screenwriter, the female screenwriter whose career was sort of occluded by men who were hogging the attention in the 70s, you know, that's Eleanor Perry. It just, I started to see in these people, you know, not just a narrative or a story about their lives that were interesting, but a kind of a way in which they were, each one was representative of some kind of wider phenomenon or some wider question that I wanted to ask myself. The choice is interesting, the different artists you write about because, and a lot of them, I would never think of them as anything less than really successful. You know, like Hal Ashby is a good example of someone who you're like, okay, well, he directed a ton of movies. Lots of them are well-regarded. Why would he be on this list? And other people, it seems like, oh, well, in a different context, they would have been thought of as successful, but in Hollywood, that's just a, you know, a more capricious idea of what success is. So I guess I'm curious how you define success. Yeah, I like that question a lot, actually, because the same thing occurred to me, right? I mean, it's like by any reasonable metric, the people in this book were all quite successful. I mean, I think, you know, even the most, I mean, probably the most obscure, you know, in air quotes, their obscure figure in the book was Carol Eastman. And, you know, she was nominated for an Oscar for Five Easy Pieces. So it's not like any of these people were what I would call failures. I mean, there's no real... You know, it's hard to think of a metric by which they could be judged that way. But I do think that they all had kind of, you know, slightly like complicated or sort of naughty artistic careers in ways that, 
you know, you think of someone like Scorsese, for example, contrasting against Hal Ashby, right? Who, you know, Scorsese is a person who was sort of, you know, lionized very fairly early on for Mean Streets and to this day is sort of, you know, considered an absolute A-list filmmaker. Whereas Ashby had a kind of run where he was absolutely an A-list figure and then a period of, of sort of decline, both creative decline and commercial decline that was interesting to me. But I think, you know, the kind of deformations of success, what we imagine to be success for an artist. And I don't think that's strictly down to Hollywood. I mean, I think if you look at writers or if one is a writer and one sort of looks out and there's always, there are always writers who are elevated within their moment. I mean, I think 10 years ago when we started Blarb, we were living in the shadow of David Foster Wallace, who had only recently passed and he was sort of, you know, held up as this kind of crucial genius writer, which I think he was. But, you know, 10 years later, I think Wallace is a bit in eclipse. But I think we still, you know, hold those fantasies of kind of achievement as this idea that you kind of ascend to a pinnacle of success and then stay there. And that's not what artists do. And that's not what people do. And I think that the latter question for me, which is how do you kind of grapple over the span of a lifetime with your own feelings of disappointment or failure or feeling like, gosh, I haven't really accomplished what I hoped I would or what I thought I would or what I, you know, what what I imagine might make me happy. You know, these are things that I think everybody or almost everybody experiences in the world. And to me, that was the more interesting question, far more than sort of looking at any of these people and thinking how much money did they make or how many Oscars did they win or, you know, all that kind of stuff. My follow-up question is, even if there's some, you know, similarity across different artistic contexts, how much also did this story to you seem to be about like the workings of Hollywood? How much success really is possible in a film industry which doesn't seem tailor-made to elevate lots of different people? It's like, you're right, Scorsese is successful, but he's kind of a rarity in that way of maintaining a certain level over many years. Sure. I think, look, the kind of perversities and deformities of the movie business and its extreme limitations, particularly in the time that I was writing about, I mean, I think as the book also makes clear, the kind of overwhelming whiteness of the movie business in the 70s. I mean, it just so many incredibly amazing writers and filmmakers weren't even given the same degree of opportunity to succeed, obviously, as other white male artists were. But I think even beyond that, I mean, the book, obviously, when it's kind of telling the stories of people who passed through that mill more explicitly, right? I mean, I think Tuesday Well passed through that mill. Tom McGuane contended with it briefly. Eleanor Perry and Carol Eastman, by virtue of being screenwriters, did. But I mean, on the other hand, the book also contends with Warren Zevon, who didn't have anything to do with the movie business exactly. Renata Adler, who didn't really. So certainly my ambition with the book was to not try to restrict the thinking to a life in the movies, which in many ways isn't really the kind of life that I'm, that I've ever been too interested in. And it's not also not the life that's really driving the personal narrative of the book. I think that as messed up as sort of funhouse like, and just utterly bizarre as the movie business can be when it comes to sort of conferring rewards and conferring recognition on people, in ways that aren't realistic, right? I mean, I think, you know, the ways that celebrities are treated in Hollywood is not the ways that successful people in other fields are treated quite. But I think 
you know, the book is probably a little bit more concerned with the kind of emotional conditions of success or failure than it is with the specific workings of the film industry. That makes sense to me. And one of the things that I, I wonder if you could talk about was that I think part of the thing that the memoir aspect of the book does is lay out some ideas of what your your formative ideas of what success and failure look like. Right. So I was wondering if you could talk about what kinds of prototypes you grew up with for both of those experiences. I mean, they're not states of being really, right? Yeah. They don't necessarily yeah. define you as a person, but no. for that experience of success or failure. I do think that there's no question that growing up, first of all, I think growing up in any kind of condition of extreme privilege, and it's hard to look at, you know, sort of growing up in the middle of 70s or 80s Hollywood as anything other than that. It's like, you know, that is a the kind of default levels of just things that are unrealistic, things that are, you know, really damaging and deforming. <laughs> We're all present. I mean, I will say neither of my parents, I mean, my mother was kind of a screenwriter who only ever had one feature made. And I think she was very reluctant to be a screenwriter to begin with. And my dad, even though he's a talent agent and we have all kinds of ideas about what that looks like from, you know, watching Entourage or whatever, my dad was sort of not, I would say he was not a wildly successful agent until I was an adult. He kind of represented a lot of like working actors, but he didn't really represent any movie stars until I was an adult, at which point he started to collect many of them. But when I was a kid, it was like, you know, his biggest client was like Bruce Dern. It wasn't Jack Nicholson. It was like the kind of people that were almost character actors or, or, you know, sort of journeyman directors. There wasn't a whole lot of glamour to it, but that stuff was at the same time very much around. One of my close friends when I was in high school was the younger sister of Emilio Estevez and Charlie Sheen. And at that time, Emilio was kind of a big star, Brat Pack star. And I remember we would kind of hang out at their house and all those guys would be there. Tom Cruise, Rob Lowe, you know, they were just like around. So you would see that stuff, you know, you would see the kind of machinations of like young Hollywood. And I worked for a while. My after-school job was working at my dad's agency, was working at Creative Artists Agency as a mailboy and reader. So it's like, I could sort of see the real kind of high-end stuff, you know, the people kind of like racing around in Ferraris and shit. And um, I didn't find it alluring. <laughs> that was never anything where I thought, oh, I sure want that. And to my family's credit, I don't think they did either. There was definitely not kind of one of those like full-on latchkey. Like, I don't think either of my parents were like lost on some <laughs> ego trip. But it's bad enough and deforming enough, I think, just to sort of grow up around a climate of that kind of license and affluence and privilege. So there's kind of very little doubt in my mind that to some extent, my outlook on the world was poisoned or limited at least a little bit by those things. You know, and again, I think most people's outlooks are, of course, formed by whatever they grew up around. But that was a particularly delimiting one to grow up anywhere near. And I think it's kind of the work of a lifetime to learn to really see through it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's funny because this book takes place as you are kind of working through, I think, a lot of that baggage and personal history. So you're kind of in this moment of your life where you feel like a failure, yeah. right? And you're in your early 40s, living back in Los Angeles after having been in New York for a long time, going through a divorce, working as a screenwriter who doesn't really get much work. Maybe. Yeah, I think that that 
period that I'm writing about, I was a pretty late bloomer as a writer too. Not, I think I started writing seriously as in every day when I was in my fairly early 20s. And I didn't publish anything until I was 40 or maybe 41. I mean, I didn't even publish a short story or an essay. I had, I remember, you know, kind of like I had an agent and, you know, I had, you know, there was a lot of encouragement, but there was no, there wasn't really any tangible evidence of success. So that is a weird position to be in when you're, you know, kind of 40 years old and kind of just struggling to, to break through at all in your kind of field of endeavor. You know, so that was just sort of the aperture for the book far more, I think, than, then, you know, like, why, why am I not a well-paid screenwriter or whatever, which is not something I was really chasing. I mean, that's the thing that never really seemed to be too much about money, although, you know, you kind of foreground a bit like some financial precarity, but that it's, and I do think this seems, you know, maybe uh, unique to Hollywood, which is doing work, especially as a writer, writing things that never, that just disappear because they're not made. And I guess that's where I thought, you know, Eleanor Perry and Carol Eastman here, both these female screenwriters who wrote so many different films, but just a lot of them were never made, that if they had been writing novels, I guess unpublished novels is one thing, but if they had been writing novels, you know, up to a certain quality, they probably would have been published. We might know them more. Yeah, Eastman is really the one where I feel like, given that Five Easy Pieces is such a wonderful piece of writing, and she you know, kind of wore the blame for, you know, there was a big debacle where she wrote a script called The Fortune that Mike Nichols directed and Jack Nicholson and Warren Beatty starred in in 1975. And it was kind of a mess. I mean, the movie's kind of a mess. It, I do think it kind of has its merits. I know the Coen brothers like love it. But Eastman was the one who sort of wore the blame for that. And I sometimes think, you know, yeah, she wore the blame because the star director and the two actors could sort of get away with a flop but somebody had to be the person they could pin it on. And, and so it sort of was pinned on her. And I think she was such a, an amazing writer, just such a beautiful and strange prose writer, which when I visited her archive in at the Ransom Center at the University of Texas in Austin, I was just shocked. You know, I thought here was this person with this extraordinary sensibility and this incredible, I don't even know quite how she would have become a screenwriter and not and not a novelist or a poet to begin with because the quality of the writing is so interesting and so odd. And, you know, she was also, I think, someone who Michael Silverblatt told me after I'd written the book, it turned out that he and she had been very close. And Michael, who certainly is in a position to judge these things, I think is, I know of the opinion that Carol was just a, an enormous genius, which is an opinion I share. And yet, other than in a couple of produced movies, a few of which aren't very good, you can't read her anywhere. And, you know, that's just kind of shocking and so frustrating to me that there was this wonderful, sui generis writer and that her work doesn't exist outside that archive to be read. It should. What was it like kind of diving into the work of these writers like Eleanor Perry and Carol Eastman that had been previously just fully unread or underappreciated? What was your intellectual experience of doing that, but also kind of what was like the affective experience of doing that? That was the best part. I mean, I think in the process of kind of researching this book, it was wonderful to watch certain films that either have received some due or haven't received quite enough due. But with Perry and Eastman in particular, where I was able to kind of go into archives and look at material that I knew wasn't in circulation or wasn't read was totally exhilarating and very um, poignant, I think, 
I mean, poignant isn't even a strong enough word for it. I felt certainly with Carol Eastman and also with Perry that that this was there was a certain sense of feeling um not like an interloper, but like I wanted to be as kind of respectful as possible. When you're looking at unpublished work, you want to be careful about what you, <laughs> you know, some of it is unpublished for a reason. And you don't want to sort of, you know, hang somebody's unfinished drafts out there for the world to read when that's not exactly what they were intended to be. But at the same time, to be able to sort of light up and frankly be lit up, to be in the presence of that kind of intelligence and that kind of talent in a context that's completely private, right? That isn't the kind of normal context of reading a movie or watching a film that's available for everybody. And you could be like, God, this is so great, isn't it? Like there wasn't anybody I could turn to while I was looking at it and say that. And that just gave it such a quality of elegy and and of kind of excitement and of kind of exhilaration to find these kind of wonderful things that weren't in public view. I mean, that's, you know, given that I'm, I'm not an historian, I'm mostly just a narrative prose writer to kind of spend time, intimate time with another writer, with other writers and filmmakers that way. It was incredible. It was my absolute favorite part of writing the book, to be honest. The book does seem to have this kind of alternate female history of Hollywood running through it, you know, just between you really, as you're talking about Eleanor Perry and Carol Eastman, you're also often referring to Elaine May and Barbara Loden and just these film and Polly Platt, you know, just these filmmakers and people who made a few movies, one movie, great movies, and didn't necessarily feel super comfortable in the limelight or weren't accustomed to being out in front and being a director, weren't giving the opportunity, maybe too much wrote on it every time. So they backed away from it, you know, at times. I thought that was so interesting, just this sense, and even Renata Adler as being someone who wrote so much about film, this kind of alternate canon that's forming of women in Hollywood during this very like male-centric, you know, easy writer, Raging Bull period. Yeah, yeah. And that definitely, I mean, you know, there's a way in which I thought about, I mean, there was a moment when I first was kind of wading towards the book where, you know, Polly Platt was certainly on that list of people I thought about writing about. I knew Polly a little bit before she passed, just a, a very little bit. And I'm glad, I'm, <laughs> I'm glad I didn't because I think Karina Longworth's podcast on Polly Platt is just so masterful and great. And, you know, I think for each of these people, both for Perry and for Eastman, who deserve more than, you know, the sort of 15,000 words or so I was able to give each of them, there was no, certainly never an impulse on my and to try to pretend to be definitive. But without a doubt, there is a canon, a kind of counter canon or a kind of complementary canon where you realize that Polly Platt is her contributions to Peter Bogdanovich's first couple movies and to many, many, many other people's work subsequent to that. Or um, besides Polly, I thought about Lee Brackett as someone that would have been worth contemplating in this way. Who's that? She was Altman's frequent collaborator. She was the one who wrote The Long Goodbye. Or uh, Joan Tewksbury, who wrote Nashville. Toby Rafelson, who was at least as responsible for the strength of five easy pieces as Bob Rafelson was. You know, it's like you once you start interrogating that canon of female directors who were overlooked, or female, obviously they weren't often enough, they weren't given the opportunity to direct. Eastman was, but the project kind of fell apart. Eleanor Perry was not and may not have wanted it. I have a feeling that she kind of really did consider herself a writer and Frank, her husband, then ex-husband was the filmmaker. But you start to realize how absolutely incomplete the previous histories of the era are and that these women are at least as responsible for the great movies that we remember as 
the male figures who tend to still hoard the lion's share of the credit. I think for that matter, Eleanor Coppola was essential <laughs> to Francis's success. You know, it's like, it's very hard to, you start realizing that none of these people that I was raised to consider the big auteurs of the 70s, that none of them were working in a vacuum and that all of them were heavily reliant on talented women who were editors or credited with strange, you know, kind of like step decorators or, you know, whatever kind of peculiar credits got hung on people like Polly Platt or Toby Ravelson that really strongly underestimate their actual contribution. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Matthew Spector, author of Always Crashing in the Same Car, an art crisis in Los Angeles, California. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Janetta Rich on the line. Janetta is a poet, a filmmaker, and a performer, and her debut book of poetry, Black Venus Flytrap, is just out by Deluge Books. And Janetta is going to give us a book recommendation. Absolutely. Hi, Kate. Thanks for having me. Of course. Yeah. It's so crazy. Like, it's not crazy. Lorca is crazy. Like, reading him is so crazy for me. But Blood Wedding was the first, my first introduction to Lorca. And it was my first semester away from home. I was 17 at this New York Drama Conservatory. <laughs> and so my scene study teacher gave me this play to read because I might have mentioned to him that I was into performance poetry. And I was at the time in New York, there was Urban Word NYC and we were going around the city performing my works, my poetry, but also I was studying acting and he gave me Lorca and I was fascinated with the text because it oscillates between dialogue and verse. Also, the imagery there is really beautiful and there's there's violence that's needed to perform, right? And so what I mean by that is just the abrupt movement that happens in the play. It's so interesting and it really engages the reader, the actor, whatever. And that's what I want to do in my poetry is that I want to write in a way that evokes visceral, you know, expression from my, from my readers. And Lorca did that for me. And, you know, just for an example, like in the first act, there are really no stage directions or there's, you know, when you open up a play, you want to hear the setting or the place or time, but there's nothing like that. And he just writes, it's a room painted yellow. And to me, that's violence, you know, because you're not giving us any instruction, you know, you're causing or you're asking or, or really forcing uh, the reader to uh, become engaged in a way that's very different. So you, they have to become a part of the story at that point when reading or when performing. They have to build on the storytelling. And so in my poems, I hope that when someone reads them, that they become a part of the story or they have to select what player they are in the poems. I, I work with a lot of characters you know, because I just grew up in a very vibrant community with many characters and a, a lot of women too, as Lorca did. He grew up with sisters. And so in Blood Wedding 2, you see that 
there's a lot of feminine energy here. And also just the tragedy of being a woman, you know, especially during that time, is it's all in there. Mm-hmm. I loved Lorca's poetry in high school and I haven't revisited it much since then actually, but I, I've never read that play. What is it about? Yeah, it's actually about farmers and Lorca grew up on a farm and it's about a family that there's a wedding that's going to take place And the young girl, of course, she's in love with, it's really the setup of it is Romeo and Juliet, right? That's what you think. But really, it gets like even darker because they're dealing with this ill-fated destiny. Each character, we know that they're going to come to some demise because... You know, that's their fate because it's a, it's sort of a generational curse, you know, that they they all die, <laughs> the men do, especially. And then the woman has to suffer through this affliction or, or the curse. And I in my writing, I talk about curses, too, because that was something my mom always reminded us of. It was very strange. She would say that one of her grandmothers worked for a shopkeeper and she cursed our family, the women in our family for generations would never, you know, have any love. Or, and so that's the, that's the stories that I heard. And so this is a story like that. I hope that didn't bear out in, in your family. <laughs> she still says it. And I'm just like, mom, you shouldn't say that, you know. But, but um, no, I still believe that we can break the curse. But, you know, yeah. that sort of... Um, folklore is still existing in the African-American community. Well, that's amazing, Trinita. Thank you so much. And and will you tell us the, the name of the work and the author again? Yes, it is Blood Wedding by Frederica Lorca. Thank you so much, Janetta. Thank you. That was Janetta Rich. Her first book of poetry, Black Venus Flytrap, is out now. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Matthew Spector, author of Always Crashing in the Same Car. One of the things that's going on in this book, that you're sort of working to break down some of these binaries that were, set, I think, set up for you as a as a kid, which was success, visions of success and failure, the people who are responsible for Hollywood, these men, and the totally unseen people who are not at all credited or credited in weird ways. And then one of the other things that is seemingly set up, and I think we kind of touched on this earlier, is like the the value of Hollywood versus real literature. Right. Um, and, or, or, or I think is like that, that's maybe... Is that, is that still a real distinction? I'm not so sure. Well, yeah. that's, so that's actually what, so that's what I want to ask you. That it, So it seems like that was kind of a feeling that you had, especially as a teenager, you kind of fled Hollywood. You thought, you know, this isn't this isn't the real thing. I think that distinction at that time was very cut and dry. I mean, there really mm-hmm. was a sense in the 70s and 80s. And I haven't really been able to, you know, you never, I mean, I think some of this has been dissolved, but I still think there's a, there's a part of it that kind of persists somewhere in the kind of American imagination, you know, that, that, that Los Angeles was, is or was some sort of like cultural desert. You know, I think it was explicit, you know, in, in my childhood. I mean, it's, it's, um, I hate to summon the ghost of, of Woody Allen, of whom I'm not an enormous fan and and kind of never was. But, you know, when you see the kind of scenes in Annie Hall where he comes out to L.A. and he mocks it or, you know, you know, kind of 
you know, goes to the the source and, you know, has a kind of ridiculous scene there. It's like, it's, it's, you realize that that was the, the idea of Los Angeles, that, that Los Angeles was a place where not, where, you know, real literature and, and real culture couldn't thrive. And, and I would, I would say that, you know, even as recently as the founding of LARB, Tom and, you know, the, the other ones of us who were in the room at the time had that sense of, of, you know, Los Angeles needs this also to sort of counteract the, the the popular notion of of Los Angeles, which is which is incorrect. I think at this point, anybody who knows anything about the area's literary history or its contemporary literary culture knows um, that that image is bullshit. But certainly, when I was younger, there was this sense that, like, well, other than Joan Didion, who clearly kind of hates it, how many serious writers? does Los Angeles have? <laughs> um, the answer then as now was so many, um, but, um, but, wasn't, yeah. but but that wasn't really understood at that time at all. I mean, I think, you know, that there was a kind of marginalization of, of a lot of California writers and, and there might still be, I mean, to some extent there might still be. So that was a, that was something that I wanted to you know, push back on, or, or I don't even know if push back on is really the case. I mean, I, I sort of feel like, you know, LA is, is, there was a time in my life where I thought, well, I don't know that I'm ever really going to write about LA, or, you know, I certainly would never write anything about the movies. And then I kind of mm-hmm. came to the realization of like, oh, you know, that's, that's, a that's a, I would be an idiot not to write about it. Like it is, it is a subject matter in which I have some, you know, experiential and emotional investment. And it's, it's a, you know, an endlessly fascinating and profound subject matter. I mean, I think the movies really are like the the mirror of America's imagination and psyche. I mean, they, I, I should say they were that like, you know, as they existed in the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century, I think they were. And I, mm-hmm. I think that their kind of centrality to American life has, was, has been sort of nudged aside by, you know, first by cable television and now by kind of the streaming platforms, which are something else. Like the things that are being produced by Netflix and and the like are interesting in their own right, but I don't really think of them as movies. It's so weird because sometimes the, you know, the violence of people's reaction towards LA, like how it's still just totally fine to hate LA and assume that everyone there is really shallow and boring. I never um, really thought of it until just now. It seems like, oh, maybe it's also this kind of feeling towards film or towards the art form. Like people are so mad at, at Hollywood that that's why they hate, hate LA because they're so intertwined. I think that's, I think that's really quite true. I mean, I think Hollywood sort of came to define LA pretty much as it came into existence at all, right? By the, by the thirties or forties, there was a strong sense of like, Oh, LA is where the motion picture colony is. And I think for all kinds of reasons, um, you know, and I think, I think you can, you can kind of trace the, the branches of that resentment many different ways. I mean, even, you know, at, at its most kind of like visceral and base, there's a kind of anti, anti-Semitism that, that plays into it and always has. But I think that a lot of the resentment of LA or the kind of idea of it as this kind of playpen for vapid people um, comes from a misapprehension of, of what the movies are <laughs> and what they mean and have meant um, you know, both as kind of, uh, you know, an, an amazing art form that that was America's like primary cultural export during the 20th century and kind of such a such an insane hegemonic tool in terms of, you know, kind of both 
kind of mirroring and shaping American self-delusions <laughs> and American ignorance and, and kind of working as a kind of propaganda tool abroad. I mean, there's, there's kind of all kinds of ways in which the movies did their part to drive and to draw the, the American century. It's not an accident that Ronald Reagan came from the movies. <laughs> it's not an accident that Donald Trump came from the world of television or really, you know, was, was, was elevated by the world of television. I mean, it's like all of it goes back to the movies. Maybe you could talk about how you kind of came through or have you come through uh, these kind of binaries that we're referencing and if you still feel haunted by this idea of, um, you know, success and failure, especially as exemplified. I think it's it's difficult when our parents um, have had, you know, creative careers that maybe they feel didn't amount to enough or, or not even creative careers, but just a career, a passion that, that didn't ever culminate in a way that they were happy with, uh, which is what your mother had. Um, that seems like, you know, speaking from experience, that's a kind of an intense inheritance. And uh, I wonder, especially, you know, grappling with your mother's death, as you do in the book, where you stand now uh, on your feelings about all this. Yeah, I mean that's a, that's a large question. I think um you know, I think first of all though that that kind of binary of like, you know, great success or failure. I think that most artists no matter where they're from will grapple with that on some level. I mean, I think you know, most people who sort of, you know, what whatever their medium is, right? If if you're a musician and you, you know, you you make a record or you know, you're a, you're an aspiring filmmaker, you're a, you're an aspiring novelist. It's like, you know, almost everyone in that position dreams of achieving some sort of like wide or universal near universal acclaim that doesn't happen. It doesn't happen to, to anybody who even doesn't even happen to the people it seems to happen to. I think most of the time, you know, I think if you were to, if you were to, to approach most writers that you think of as being very famous or who are very famous, if you were to scratch those surfaces, you would find people who still felt somehow like they hadn't lived up to what they what they wanted on some level. Um, so I do think that that you know, if, if if the question is, am I still haunted by that? Yes, a little bit, but I would say um, certainly not in the way that I was when I was younger. And and I think you know part of that is, and and I hope the book reflects this. You know, you 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 start to understand that that the real errand of of art, <laughs> any piece of art, isn't the sort of the glorification of the person who made it. It's the, it's the effect that that piece of art has on, has on the people who encounter it in the world. And, you know, certainly I know for me, you know, the questions that I ask myself as a writer when I'm working on something are less and less, um, what is writing this going to do for me? And more and more, what are my responsibilities to, uh, the, the the thing that I'm writing and to the the world that that surrounds it, you know, one starts to feel, you know, or I have come to feel that that my own relationship to success or, you know, to to what I want to achieve when I write a book like this one or when I write anything, um, it's very different. You know, I'm I'm not really looking to, you know, climb the ladder to achieve some sort of like personal acclaim. I mean, you know, not that I would necessarily find that horrible, although I actually kind of suspect. Maybe I would kind of find that horrible, but you know that's that's not really what I'm after. And I think that the narrator of this book, there's a slight level of of I would say burlesque in the way that the the narrator, or the way that I 
kind of exaggerate those traits in myself at the book's beginning, you know, just as a way of kind of kind of exploring the transformation that the book itself, I, I think, you know, dramatizes in that particular outlook. I mean, well, tell me if this is too personal, but I wonder if the passing of your mother was also some kind of, and I, and I do think you talk about this in, in this kind of way somewhat, but a, a kind of liberation from what otherwise was an inheritance of a kind, even before she died, but also of this need to kind of be seen and yeah. understood by her. Maybe. I mean, I think, you know, yes, that's and it's certainly not not at all too personal, but I, I think, you know, the process of, of um, you know, and I think this is true for everybody, the process of mourning a parent or mourning anyone who's kind of served that that space over time is a, you know, it, it changes. Your relationship changes and your mm-hmm. experience of that grief changes. And certainly in my mom's case, you know, while my mom was alive, and I think this was true all the way to the end, because she had, you know, kind of been a very difficult and, and you know, I guess I would sort of have to say abusive. abusive. Um, you know, it was when, when I did lose her, which was uh, 12 years ago now, I or 13, I, um, you know, it was it was hard because I didn't really feel the things that I would have expected to feel. I didn't, I didn't feel loss. I didn't feel a tremendous amount of sadness. I felt like this kind of strange, it was like an after effect. I thought, well, I had lost her in a kind of emotional sense many, 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 many years before. So, so I didn't know what to do with that information, the information of her death. And, and I think it's been the process, which is, which is ongoing. I think it kind of carries over in a different way in the book I'm writing now of kind of understanding the the forces that shaped her and the world that grew up that she grew up in and the the kind of very very difficult emotional hand that she herself was dealt that has led me around to to a far deeper understanding of of who she was and sort of starting to understand that the, that the moments in which she was abusive to me which is certainly not the only way she was were surrounded by a life that was so interesting and so deserving of of you know, love and respect and a lot of feelings that I wasn't necessarily able to, to, to offer her while she was alive. So, you know, this book is, is certainly part of that. You know, I, I think that as much as it certainly discusses some of the abuses and difficulties I had with her growing up, I like to think that the book is, is not ungenerous to her or, you know, that it too kind of rotates into a position of, of greater understanding of where she was coming from. Mm. I think the flip side of that relationship in the book is your relationship with your daughter, um, who at the beginning of the book is she's three years old <laughs> um, and she's asking you, daddy, what do you do? Yeah. What do you do? <laughs> and that also sort of struck me as like, oh, here's another person that is maybe not totally understand. I mean, she's a, a little girl, sure. obviously, right. but who's maybe not totally understanding what's going on with you and like what, what you care about, what you'd like to accomplish, what you think of as success. And she's also too small to even really explain any of those things, obviously. But I wonder if, you know, having a relationship with a child and with a daughter felt like also a a fresh start in a way and 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 a way to like embody something other than what you had felt you could embody professionally. It turns out to be, yes. I mean, yes, I, I think I certainly, you know, you don't, you don't think of your child as a as a fresh start in that way. Or I, <laughs> I'm more concerned with who she is or, or my effect on her rather than her effect on me. But there is something, you know, given that 
my daughter who's 17 now. And, and I think, you know, some of this is traced in the book, but especially in the, in the year since the book was, you know, since, since uh, sort of the book has been finished for the last couple months, it's like, has been very, you know, been very sort of dramatic is the wrong word, but, you know, she's come out in terms of her sexuality and her identity. And, and she's, you know, kind of right on the cusp of, of, of adulthood now. And it's so, it's so amazing to realize, you know, Oh, I have this, child who who talks to me and who who reveals herself to me and who I feel close to in a way that I wasn't able to experience with with either of my parents and also you know some of the great things some of the good things that my mom and I were able to do together you know just the the conversations we now have about what she's reading and and you know about movies and about art and about music it's like that stuff is so fun it's really it's it's so wonderful and so and so rewarding and and you know I think for anybody who's grown up with a kind of damaged or dysfunctional relationship with either parent, the rewards of, of having a child and finding a relationship that might not be those things is unspeakably great. <laughs> um, it really amazes me every day. It also struck me that she, she in, in there are moments in the book when she's really your avenue to other definitions of success. Yes, yes, she for sure. She provides it kind of immediately. For sure, yeah. Well, yeah. her presence in the book was much harder for me to negotiate than anybody else's, you know, because mm. I think, but partially because I'm I'm concerned about her, you know, kind of privacy and, and individuality. It's, you know, it's, when you're writing about your parents, you're writing about, you know, ancestors, right? People people who, <laughs> whose stories are, are already larger than than yours and, and are already largely written. You know, when, when you're writing about a child, I would would not have wanted to write anything that would have been um, invasive <laughs> or given too much away. And also I think, you know, there was a, you know, it's just, it's a place where, you know, a kind of sentimentality could have intruded upon the book. And I didn't want that to happen either. Hopefully any parent, you know, realizes that, that one's child's well being is far more immediate and far more important than, you know, one's own kind of navigations of, you know, like, am I, am I going to, you know, succeed at this task I'm doing or not. It's like all of that takes a backseat to, um, you know, am I, am I, am I providing my child with what they need? <laughs> um, and being able to experience that, which I think is, as I said, written into the book in a way that, you know, as, as a point of fulfillment or as a point of, of, you know, something that, that was very consoling to me at key moments, you know, that, that, that's right. I mean, I think that's exactly what, she represents to me in the book is an alternative understanding of what success might be. There's so much else in the book we didn't really talk about, but talking about alternate models of success, you know, it, something that I thought of while reading this is how much I love watching any kind of movie, even one that isn't like completely successful and um, that movies capture so much, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, the crazier, the the worse failure, the better. Yes, and yes absolutely. That, yeah. <laughs> those can have real staying power. You know, I mean, like Showgirls is... Yes. Everyone, yeah. I, I want to watch that movie on Showgirls, but that's a great yeah. example of a movie that's like a total failure, but such a failure that it's it's just fascinating and wonderful. And I would watch it like over and over again. Yes. Um, And I do, and I think you reference quite a few films in here that are probably like, you know, you'd watch them and they'd be a bit of a head scratcher. Yes. Uh, but they're worth, but they're worth watching and it's great that they exist. Um, so I wondered if maybe we could close with you giving us, you know, a directive for a few films that we absolutely have to watch. Uh, 
Oh man, this is always a, a, a monster question in a way because just, that's in the book. Yeah. Well, yes. I know. I know okay. that, but I, I, I just keep thinking about, you know, this whole question, which I think is, you know, kind of lurking in the book about, you know, there, there are only so many hours in the day. Right. And so there's sort of like, there are so many great works of art that no matter how like dedicated you are, you have, we haven't gotten to. Right. So you say to yourself, why, why would I, why would I kind of direct my attention to this, you know, obviously flawed piece of work instead? Um, and yet I think to myself, like, you know, I don't know. It's like, those can be the most rewarding sometimes. It's like the, 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 the films or the books that are like, you are sort of like, yeah, I know it's got all these problems, but like, I love it so much, you know? And I also think, you know, that you can't really um, pull apart the, the greatness of, um, you know, sort of sometimes even with a, even with a work of art, that's really great. You start to realize like, Oh, like the kind of the strengths of this thing are also its weaknesses. Um, you know, or you you can't really separate, you know, it's like that somehow a strength is usually, and I think this is just kind of axiomatic that like a, 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 a work of art's real strength tends to be a kind of inverted weakness or, you know, even sometimes a, like a weakness that's been exaggerated. You know, I think that's a, that's a thing that, that can help me sometimes when I'm, when I'm working on something too. If I were to try to direct people to watch particular movies, boy, this is like one of those questions where you think, you know, do I really want to direct people to watch, you know, I mean, you know, there are certain movies that, you know, for example, The Long Goodbye, Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye, which is, you know, canonical, right? I mean, everybody knows that movie is is central. But I think that, I think that there is something inexhaustible about that movie. And it's, and it it is, you know, you, you could in no way, there's, there's nothing about that movie one would call a failure. It's, it's a masterpiece but it's a masterpiece in such a, such a peculiar way. Right. I mean, you know, it has, it has all these sort of quiet and eccentric moments of texture, you know, it kind of opens with, you know, like a, you know, seven minute sequence of a, of a guy trying to buy cat food. Like, you know, that's, that's not, those aren't the terms of, of a masterpiece. Right. I mean, even if in this case they are, they're the <laughs> those are the terms that that movie, you know, stakes itself to become a masterpiece. And I think in a lot of ways, like, those are the things that I, that I love in, in the movies, you know, and, and I, I would say, you know, if I were just going to think of like some seventies movies that I think are underseen, I think the King of Marvin gardens, I think Bob Rafelson's the King of Marvin gardens is a movie that, that um, is very eccentric and elliptical and doesn't invite you right in, but I think it's, you know, and, and was a failure, right? It was, it was Rafelson's move on the heels of five easy pieces. And it's got Jack Nicholson and Bruce Dern playing brothers. Um, and it's just, it's just an amazing movie. I remember, you know, the first time I tried to watch it, just, you know, getting about 30 minutes into it and falling asleep, just being like, I don't get this at all. And now I think it's a better movie than five easy pieces. I think it's a, I think it's a masterpiece. Oh, great. We'll have to check those out. And also, um, what about, uh, last summer? Last summer is amazing. And it's, it's, um, I think I say this in the book, there's one print of it in existence and it's housed inside the National Film and Sound Archive of Australia. So it never, it never screens. It's a really ruthless movie. You know, it's, it's just about this kind of teenage love triangle. And, um, but it's, it's set on, I think it's Fire Island or, you know, kind of one of the kind of New York summer islands and the adults in it, you know, they're not quite teenagers. They're all like 19, but their, their parents are all around and, and the adults are like, in that movie are like, they're like the adults in a Peanuts cartoon in that you kind of hear them, but you never really see them. Like it's, 
it's this weird sense of this, you know, or you see them kind of briefly, but you're, you're never really focused on them. You're just fo- focused on these, this one woman, Barbara Hershey, and, and these two men, and then this other girl who, who kind of comes into their constellation. And it's, um, it's so brutal. You know, it's, it's really just this kind of like eviscerating, um, you know, kind of um, horrible relationship quadrangle. And it's, it's, I mean, I mean, horrible in the best way. It's, it's really desolating and upsetting. You know, I think that's the Perry's best movie and it's, but you have to, if you want to see it, there's a kind of, I, I, I can't remember if there's a version of it on YouTube, but there's a pretty decent print of it on ok.ru, um, which is one of those like slightly dodgy Russian video sites um, that's safe to visit. Like it won't, it won't infect, it won't infect you with malware. But if you, if you go there, you can find it. You can find a, a decent print of last summer and, and, uh, and you should, it's incredible. Well, thank you, Matthew, so much for being here and um, for those recommendations and, and everything else. Uh, thank you guys for having me. And thank you for having such, to you. such thoughtful and, and nuanced questions. I loved it. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Madaya. That was amazing. We've been speaking with Matthew Spector. His newest book is Always Crashing in the Same Car on Art, Crisis in Los Angeles, California. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Teasley-Vladen.